welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In every episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, we're going through the short stories of 1953. And this episode, we'll be looking at Project Earth. Project Earth was first published in Imagination in December 1953. Uh, Dick had published a lot of stories in Imagination uh, throughout 1953 and 1954. It was one of the common uh, science fiction fantasy magazines that he published in. And I think he had six or seven just in 1953 alone. And in one issue, he published twice, and he had to publish one under a pseudonym because he sold two to that magazine that same, that same uh, month. Uh, you can currently find it most easily in the second volume of the collected works of Philip K. Dick, the We Can Remember It For You Wholesale volume or the Total Recall volume, if you prefer that less um, unwieldy title of the story. All right, this is in this story works on several different levels. It's the story of the Cold War in a lot of ways. Um, and of course, Dick's writing these stories when the Cold War was still fairly hot. You still had the Korean War raging or, or just finishing. Uh, Eisenhower had just become president and he had become president really with the foreign policy of, of kind of managing the Cold War a little bit more. Uh, linking it less about brinksmanship and, and violence and kind of making it a more regulated system, if you will. And he succeeded largely in doing that. Um, the previous half decade since, really the previous decade since the end of the Second World War was really about, you know, a really tense Cold War period where war was a real potential. And there's a lot of, um, there's literally fighting, of course, in Korea. So you got a little bit, it toned down. But that's beside, that change is beside the point because you still had culturally this, idea that there was communists behind every corner, a lot of paranoia and, and panic. And this filtered down into popular culture a lot. So in some ways, this story is really about the paranoia about the communists next door, right? Or the, there was that movie from around this period, you know, I married a communist, you know, or, or other kind of movies about, you know, spies in our midst. It's also a story about the, the gap between adulthood and childhood. And this is this is the big gap, and I think it's it's bigger at different times in, in American history than others. And I think the 1950s is probably a period where that gap is pretty um, big, particularly between, and unless it's partially cultural perspectives on it, but the gap is really big between, I guess, children and fathers, especially the fathers who might work, the middle class fathers who are gone all day, right? And you might have an idea of what your father does, but he doesn't maybe talk to you about it very much. He's often gone. You spend most of your time with your mom or in the neighborhood. Um, so there's kind of this fatherlessness going on. And, you know, this is something Dick writes about in the father thing. Um, but he's also interested in the more systemic gaps between childhood and adulthood. The fact that adults have all the power. They create the communities, they create the governments, they create the policies and the institutions that have big effects on how children live their lives, right? So the idea that our world is being constructed um, is, is true to a degree, right? It, it's constructed by a minority of people. You know, um, there's many of them. It's not a conspiracy, but, you know, there's a handful of people that have a lot of the, the economic power, and they're the ones who are going to direct how our culture develops who doesn't have any say in this 
Now, we all, most adults have some say maybe through democracy, through their consumer choices or whatever, maybe not much. Children, of course, have no say on what the world is going to be. And so from their point of view, the world really is being constructed. Okay, the plot. Uh, we have three children here, Tommy, Dave, and Joan. And they're doing something that's pretty common for young people. They're spying on a neighbor, an older neighbor. Right, this guy's Edward Billings is his name, and they're spying on him through a crack on the wall. It's a fairly common experience for kids, and you know, I even have memories of this a little bit. You know, that there's a neighbor who maybe is a little bit weird, lives alone, maybe has some kind of disability, maybe he's just mean to the local kids and scares them off, or he has a nasty dog. So instead of staying away from him, the kids kind of harass him a little bit or spy on him or build up stories around him, right? And that's the kind of the sense you get happening here at the beginning of this this tale. But Billings is working in a room full of documents. He's working on a typewriter and he's building this massive report based on all these documents in, in the room, right? And that's the kids realize he's making a report, which suggests maybe something about their parents, that their parents are the you know, business people, perhaps, and a lot of what they do is reports, right? No one really knows what the reports are or what their function is. And I'm reminded of David Graeber's book, The Utopia of Rules, which was published, I think, last year. And it's based on work he had been doing for a while on the role of bureaucracy in modern society. And, you know, how it there's this kind of this utopianism with this, that if you just create a, a set of rules for everyone, if you create... Um, if you plan societies well, this requires a lot of paperwork, of course, but if you plan societies, you can create the ideal, fair, just um, society, but also creates this huge power differential between the people and the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy itself, or the rules makers, and all the rest of us, right? And the opaqueness that bureaucracy feels, it, it has the presumed agenda of fairness, but in fact, it's it becomes a big wall that separates us from our institutions and our government. He says a lot more in that great book, but this is just, that's just part of what's going on there. But the point is in this story, you got this, the, the, the report or the bureaucracy or the stack of documents is a really powerful image in this, in this story. And it's certainly part of middle-class life in the 1950s, especially for people in business fields, you know, white collar jobs. Now, Joan suggests that Billings is a communist agent or a criminal, but very interestingly, the other kids reject this idea, saying he can't be a communist, you know, he can't be a criminal because he doesn't look like one, right? And their images of what communism is or what communists look like come from popular culture or cartoons or the movies or what's in the comic books. Another boy, another one of the kids, Dave, says he must be working for a company because he's working on a report. And here we get the suggestion that maybe Dave's father does that. That's what he sees his father doing all the time is working on reports or talking about reports or whatever. They don't know what reports do or what they are or what function they have. And I'm not sure most of us know either. I, I remember once I was teaching business English and, you know, I, I did a lot of email stuff, how to write emails. It was an ESL course. Um, you know, I even did business plans. I don't know what a business plan is, right? I know that's something you try to sell to a to a, a bank or whatever, right? But or investors. But when it came to like, what's a business report? It was on the syllabus. You know, you're supposed to teach business reports. You know, I didn't know what a business report was either, and I had to really kind of study that and and, and research it. 
Anyways, um, but Tommy eventually manages to catch a glimpse of the massive report, and it's got a title. The title is Project B Earth, or Project Earth B. Tommy is overwhelmed with curiosity, and he enters Billion's apartment at the front door, and it's just unlocked. He just walks in. He just strolls in, and he quickly goes to take a look at the report, and it has all kinds of detailed facts and figures on different nations on Earth. It's a huge compendium of facts. Now, this in itself is not surprising either. Plenty of people keep such compendiums of facts. We have the UN collects data, the CIA collects data, the World Bank has all this data on population and literacy and GDP, crime rates, you know, number of people in the military, you know, anything you want you can find, right? You can just Google it now. But, you know, in the 1950s, you had, you know, government agencies and international organizations collecting a lot of fact about nations. And this got kind of all built into the to the language and the goals of developmental um, of development. Right. This is how you measure development in society. Right. You know, some may be better than others, but it all kind of tries to boil down development into a number. GDP, under five mortality rate, literacy rate, whatever, depending on your values, you're going to maybe find a different measurement of, of development. Uh, so, it, actually, at this point, there's still nothing strange except for the title, Project B Earth, but even that could be explained. Tommy finds a small garden in Billings Porch which has some small hairless animals the size of insects. And before he can look closer, he's approached by Billings, who asks for his help in carrying water. Billings is very open with Tommy, and it's not like normally if a kid is found out breaking into a neighbor's house, there might be an incident get out of here, kid, that kind of thing. But Billions is very open with Tommy, shows him the small creatures, uh, tells him that they're a trial population, quote-unquote trial population. He also explains that he's writing a report about Earth for his superiors. And he explains. He's just openly explaining all this to, to Tommy without any um, fear. Now, what does he explain? I want to talk about what he explains first and then maybe suggest something about what it means. Project A, he says, is a creature with wings with a high level of individuality, and it failed. Project B, Earth, is under review, but Billions confesses that the report will suggest a failure because of the lack, lacking strong individualism, Project B splintered into competing groups. Billions' superiors, who seem to be creators, have no power over the development of the projects once they are begun. And then there's Project C, the small group, the small people Tommy identified. Those are like these little hairless animals the size of insects they're like they'll be project c and that'll be the next effort and he explains all this to this kid now what's going on here well obviously we have now a science fiction setting where you have some kind of creators some planners some engineers making experimenting in different societies and earth is simply just one of them so we're reminded of a story that dick wrote just prior to this called the trouble with bubbles in which everyone is able to create their ideal worlds in kind of snow globes and do what they want with them. Usually they destroy them and cause some catastrophic end of that society. Um, and we, maybe something similar is going on here. It's much more bureaucratic, though. It's not the individual creativity that you get in the trouble with bubbles. Here it's a bureaucracy and an institution. And you've got employees and overseers and you know everyone just kind of does their job, in it, including the people under review. Now, why is Billions so open with them? What I get out of this openness that Billions has with Tommy is partially that children aren't seen as really agents that matter to a lot of adults, right? They can explain 
all their complexities to them because the kids can't understand it anyways. It's just going to go in one year and not the other, right? And sometimes parents will talk to children with this kind of indifference, assuming they don't understand or assuming they're not really that free. You know, we'll talk about it. They won't understand. You know, we can talk about whatever seriousness at the dinner table we want. We could talk about sex. We could talk about violence. That's not going to affect kids because they're just kind of too stupid to understand what's going on. Or talk about work. Right? And to a degree, that might be true. Kids often maybe don't understand, but they learn a lot quicker than I think most adults realize. And they, they figure stuff out pretty quick. But there's a kind of ascension here. That's the point. There's a kind of ascension by billions towards this, this child. So um, Tommy runs back home after hearing all this strange news, but he quickly double backs to Billings' place. And after a short conversation, Billings returns to work on his report, and Tommy sneaks uh, to the porch. He steals the nine creatures in the garden, placing them in a cigar box, and he goes back home and he places these nine creatures in a small cage. The next day, Tommy shows off his small people to his friends. Uh, one of his friends, Dave, wants to buy them. Another wants to see them in clothing. And Joan volunteers to, I guess, make clothing or maybe she has doll clothing for them or something. Tommy demonstrates a game of hide and seek that he plays with the little people. Joan brings clothes in for the little people. Edward Billings finally approaches Tommy while the kids are playing in a lot. He demands that Tommy return the people to him. And Tommy refuses, saying essentially finders keepers. But eventually he agrees to a game of marbles and the stakes being these people. And sometimes later, Tommy and Billions compete in a game of marbles for these little, the Project C people. At the end of the first round, Tommy has only two marbles from victory, but on Billions' turns, he knocks out all the remaining marbles out of the circle on the first toss, using some kind of power. Um, so the game is basically rigged. I, I guess I was too old to ever play marbles. I I believe I probably played it a few times, but it was sort of being beyond my time. I, I grew up more in the 80s. So I don't, um, I don't really have much memory of, of how to play this, but I think you kind of flick one marble and like a, you were, you kind of use one marble as a, as like a, like almost like pool where you knock a marble into another one and you're trying to get them out of the circle or, or get them into places for scoring. But Billions just kind of uses some power to get all the marbles where he wants them. So with the Project C people back in his control, Billions explores the damage done by their captivity by Tommy. And here we kind of have the, the climax of the story. When Billions opens up the cigar box, the little people immediately scatter around. They unplug the lamp and escape into the darkness. Billions realizes that rebellion and independence had already infected Project C. He realizes that every experiment will fail because the discontent and disobedience is carried on from the previous project. Here, in this case, literally. Project B has, is, is plagued by that kind of clannishness right? Disobedience and, you know, especially among children, the children gave it to this Project C and it'll carry on. And the first sign of the failure of Project C is that they're wearing clothes. And of course, if you think about wearing clothes here, this is a symbol of, of God's failure in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve fail, they, they eat the apple, they feel shame, and then they want to wear clothes. Okay, so that's, that's the story. Um, Project Earth. Well, what can we make of this story? I, I think I already said some of the things we can uh, say about this. But the narrative of the biblical fall runs through Project Earth uh, throughout the whole thing. Uh, we have, you know, everything from the naked creatures to this idea of kind of innocence and corruption and the fall and all that is there. 
It seems that the creators of life that Billions works for want to create a perfect society of obedience and order. And maybe in, in a sense, this is where the Bible got the story wrong, uh, at least from our late capitalist perspective. You know, the pro, you know, the in, in our world, if we were to create a, a creation story, right, we would have bureaucrats probably doing it. You know, we would have a hierarchical system and I'd have to revisit Prometheus and Alien Covenant, you know, because maybe the engineers have this bureaucratical hierarchical society um, as well. Well, the first experiment fails because of intense individualism, right? This was apparently made possible by their capacity to fly. Their ability to fly made them in incredibly individualist. And this is what they're trying to avoid, right? And here we have children infecting them with individualism represented in the fact that they were clothes, right? But anyways, back to Project A. They could fly, so without would be able to fly, go wherever they want, they really didn't depend on each other that much, so they became very individualist. The second project, Humans on Earth, it's a more docile to group think, right? They, they, they give in to groups, but still those groups are very antagonistic to a universal authority, like, like, a, like a UN style, you know, overarching global authority and they still have too much individualism by and large maybe reflected by certain aspects of consumer society with clothing but consumer society itself is something that dick thinks is largely a, a conformist thing something that leads to conformity so we have kind of groupthink going on here and mixed with that is this, this individualism and this tension towards a universal authority project c uh, these creatures, we know a little bit about them. Um, they have antenna, but their innate emotions and emo innate drives are suppressed. The creators hope hyper-rationality will ensure that these people are more controlled. And things are going well for the third group until they're introduced to the rebelliousness of Project B. By what? By a game, by clothing and a game of hide-and-seek. Hide-and-seek is how... Tommy teaches them individualism. That transition from being amodest, from amodest nudity to wearing clothes is similar to the narrative given in the Bible for Adam and Eve after the fall. The role of playing hide and seek is a little bit more subtle, though, and perhaps more interesting. The game takes as its central tenet the evasion of the eyes of an authoritarian figure, right? And that's what hide and seek is. And that's the lesson of hide and seek is the person who's it. His goal is to watch and know where everyone is and keep eyes on people and know where the hiding spaces in the home or the yard are, right? The job of the people hiding is to know the places the, the master doesn't know about, right? To escape his view for as long as possible. And if you can escape it long enough, you know, you could essentially be free, right? Now, I guess, the, you know, when we always play hide and seek, eventually the, the one who hides comes out, right? As kind of is able to declare his victory over the the master you know but the rules you know are you kind of wait there till they find you i suppose so it becomes a more perpetual escape from the eyes of authority symbolically at least victory in the game requires escaping the eyes sight and the oversight of the master defeating the panopticon if, if you read foucault you know this concept of the panopticon the ideal surveillance state in which the government can watch everyone but no one individual can see each other really, or, or, or have that kind of solidarity. So they're all atomized, but all observed.
right? Vic winning hide and seek as a subject of that game, or you know, one of the people who have to hide, means escaping the panopticon essentially. Of course, that is what they do at the end. They play hide and seek with with Billings, right? They they work together to cut off the lights and escape. Now, I've never th really thought of hide and seek as an example of anti-authoritarian training or anarchist calisthenics, calisthenics, um, or anarchist practice. But perhaps it, there is something to it. it teaches this uh, resistance to authority. Make it your goal to avoid being seen. And in our surveillance state world, I think it's a good lesson to teach children. Another point in this story is the relationship between children and adults. Project Earth reflects really two levels of this. One level is a relationship between the, the various projects and the creators. In a sense, the bureaucracy and the creators are all the adults and all these projects are just the children, right? Being experimented on. Every time a parent tries to raise a kid to be like them, tries to give them interest that they have, or tries to plan for their life to suggest that they should go to this school or they're going to this program or play this sport, they are being these bureaucratic overlords like Billings. Billings is interested in what Project B is up to, but realizes with frustration that he has little power over what Project B actually does. Project B has already declared its independence from its parents, so he can just kind of observe it. This is what Billings says about humans. Quote, since your project has moved out of jurisdiction to such a degree that for all intents and purposes you are no longer functional, end quote. Essentially, they grew up, which good parents, you know, praise as, as, as a good time as a moment in which they've gotten their independence and their freedom. For billions, it's failure, right? They, they've gone so far off the track that we planned for them. Now, I never quite hear empty nesters put it this way, but essentially describing the maturation of people to individual autonomy, liberated from the power of their parents. From the bureaucrats' point of view, this autonomy is evidenced by failure, not success, right? Now, this, of course, is the same story we get in the Old Testament, where humanity's drive to auto for autonomy from God is described as a fall, right? The entrance of sin and a horrible thing. It's not the normal maturation that we all go through, right? Now, yeah, parents may resist it, but eventually they come to terms with it. In the Bible, when his creation, its creation, God's creation falls, you know, it's, it's an inevitable break that requires this whole thousand-year plan to, to redeem, right? For whatever reason, authoritarian figures cannot handle the autonomy of those under their power. And Billings is quite honest about this, right? That they're a failed project and we're going to move on, right? To find someone we can control more effectively. However, another level of this interaction between children and adults, including Billings is just in general the feeling we get in the story about parent-adult relations, not the specific creator and created interaction, which is certainly there. Tommy's parents only appear occasionally to shout orders that are not followed. We have very typical Philip K. Dick parents here where they're aloof, they're indifferent, they have their own problems, they're not particularly attentive, they have their jobs or, or their own issues to deal with. Um, I'm reminded of like the cookie lady, 
which is a story where you have these traumatic, horrible things happening to this young child, and the parents don't really care. They're just they just should, they're just these people in like at the kitchen table at breakfast time reading the newspaper, and then they're off to work or whatever. Tommy comes and goes as he desires. Billings is able to trump Tommy's mastery of marbles using some special power. Right now, we suspect few adults would be able to best Tommy or his friends using marbles. Right. There are games that children know better than adults, but adults cheat against kids when they play games all the time. Right. It's a cruel, horrible thing to do, but they sometimes do it. Right. And, I, you know, I've, I've cheated from time to time against people who didn't know better. Right. Cheating is quite common. And, par and parents do it actually all the time, not just in games, but in their normal interactions. Right. Well, they'll trick them to get them to do their homework or trick them to get them to eat their dinner or something. Right. And essentially they have to cheat to get these things done. And Billings is an open cheater. Um, uh, Tommy's parents, we presume, are probably more subtle in their cheating. Billings sees Project C as his subjects under his care. Tommy and his friends use them as playthings. Of course, parents or children will look at parents and judge them, too. But we don't get the sense they'll write a massive report you know, and declare them a failure, right? And I guess most parents don't quite do that either, but they will take an accounting of their children and make some kind of judgment, right? And we hear parents all the time say things like, you disappoint me, or you're a failure, or why don't you turn out like... They, maybe if they don't say it that directly, they'll say, why don't you turn out like your sister, or why don't you turn out like your cousin or something, or look, look, at look, your cousin just bought a house, you know, in a way kind of saying, well, too bad you didn't buy a house. So anyways, um, these children, the Project B children, have internalized certain anti-authoritarian values. And for Project 3C to be infected by anti-authoritarian values, it had to be by children, right? They're the infectors. They're the ones who destroy Project C. And here's the children. It's not the adults. And we suspect that the adults may be, you know, because Project B is the middle project. Right. It's they're not full individualists, but they're not they're still they're they're progressing towards that kind of universal hive mind that the creators seem to want. And they get that through maybe their workplaces or their nations. Right. And I think when the billion says something like they are, you know, they have this kind of group think, you know, in clans, they have a kind of a tribal mentality that he's thinking about nations. Right. And how the world's divided up into these different nations. It's the children who have the pure anti-authoritarian values that are still corrupting, right? And that's where the infection of Project C comes in from. Um, anything else to say here? Well, I guess we have the ancient aliens. I, I mean, I don't take that argument seriously. The idea that there were ancient aliens who came here and, and even if they, well, maybe, who knows, right? But the idea that they came here and started civilizations or built the pyramids, that I think is pretty much... Uh, hogwash. There's plenty of historical evidence for these human creations uh, that we don't need aliens to explain them. But there are people out there who take seriously the idea of alien origins of humanity or alien origins of civilization. And this is one of a handful of stories that that plays with the idea and that Philip Kiddick wrote. I don't think Dick believed much in it. Um, but there were texts at the time that played with this idea of of ancient aliens the most famous actually was after this story was written it was in 1968 but it's the chariots of the gods and um 
you know, Dick's ideas were already kind of on paper by 1968. Now, maybe it affected him later in his career if he actually got around to reading it. But it, it shows that the idea of, of ancient alien visitors helping to found ancient civilizations and religions is out there. I mean, it's it's not entirely, um, it's not just middle, you know, people from the 21st century who think this way. And it's not just shows on the History Channel. It, it does have a deeper DNA. Um, maybe it, with the decline of, of religious, certain religious belief or biblical literal, literalism, you have people trying to explain creation in different ways. And maybe it's a halfway point between pure naturalistic theories of human origins and the kind of the creator story. Um, and maybe later on I can talk a little bit more about what this means about ideas about civilization. And what it comes down to is this, when you say it takes an outsider to create civilization or to guide our development to civilization, you're suggesting we're not capable of doing it. And there are ideas that maybe it wasn't aliens, but that there was a single origin of of, of civilization and it spread, right? Certain, even some Pan-African ideas have this, that there was one origin of civilization and then it spread. Uh, not Pan-Africanism, sorry, Afrocentrist ideas. Um, but of course, there were um, other concepts. In fact, I'm working right now on the debates of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, their letters, and they are getting to this little debate where Robert E. Howard seems to think that civilizations could have started in one place and spread around because he's interested in migration and mobility and movement and interactions of people and the kind of the barbarian running through the steppes. That's his kind of ideal ancient world. Lovecraft can't really, he, he, he hates migration so much. He's so fearful of newcomers and immigrants and, you know, the outsider coming in with their new ideas and weirdness that he thinks civilization almost needs to have a permanent homeland and stability to it. So this requires him to accept that all these civilizations formed independently, right? But that out of that, they get kind of a, a static nature. Anyways, I, I don't quite know fully where that debate goes. They, they did it for three, four, five years um, at the end of Robert E. Howard's life. So maybe I'll report on that later when I have a clearer idea of what I want to say about it. But, um, you know, the, there, the idea is that there was a single origin of civilization that and then civilization spread from there is out there in some theories of history. Anyways, that's getting a little bit off topic here. I'm sorry for that. But uh, that essentially is the story uh, Project Earth. It's it's not really one I've heard mentioned much as, you know, a great Philip Dick story. Maybe it's not that original. I, you know, I don't know. But I think it has a lot of interesting things to say about the interactions between humans and adults. And particularly the indifference and, the, you know, that adults sometimes give children or that, that adults just don't take children seriously or this tension between the children's individualism and the need of adults to have stability and bureaucracy and order and planning and all that stuff. Um, anyways, I think it's worth reading and worth looking at if you want to get the full picture of, of Philip Kiddick's ideas about generations. Um, something we'll talk a lot more about when we get to the crack in space and Dr. Futurity and those novels, the pre-persons too. All right then, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm going to sign off now. This episode's been long enough, but it's, you know, I just, I want to promote this story. Um, go read it. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks.